The grace of God was with Mochuda from his early years. He spurned the worldly ways of both his parents that he might become devoted to the Lord. He loved the praise of God sung by the Bishop Carthagus and his devoted monks and spent long days at Tuam in the monastery just to hear the Psalms. He soon became the bishop's charge that he might learn to trust the Lord and serve his holy, glorious name. Welcome to the Inverse Theology Project. I'm your host, T.M. Moore. This is Volume 23, Number 3, Historical Theology. The Celtic Revival, that great movement of God's Spirit which began in Ireland and spread all over Europe for 350 years, began to wind down in the middle of the 7th century. In some ways, the blame for this falls on those who inherited the leadership of great monastic foundations in Ireland. As they became distracted from the mission and legacy of the Great Revival, they turned to self-interest and political scheming, and this turned the heart of God against them. Here is part 11 in our series, Lives of Irish Saints, Mochuda. The death of Columbanus, 615 A.D. at Bobbio in Italy, stands as a kind of watershed between the glory days of Christianity in Ireland and its field and what became the sunset of an era. It would be less than 100 years before the name of Rome was stamped on every sacred place in Ireland, and in every land the fame of Ireland's faith had brought the saving grace of God to for revival. By the turn of the ninth century, the very face of faith in Ireland would forever learn a new expression. When at Whitby in 664 a British king would spurn the claims of Irish bishops and begin the rule of Rome, the great vitality of Irish faith would slip away, lost in traditions, ways, and language that the See of Rome approved. The age of saints would end, the past would be rewritten, Celtic-free, and Irish Christians would begin to bend their knees to Rome. How could this happen? What strange, weakened strains of faith began to wend through Irish Christianity to gut its ancient heritage? The Irish life of St. Machuda gives a glimpse of what the state of faith was and the growing strife between the Christian leaders in that land before the Whitby Synod stamped the life out of the Celtic faith. To understand this sad state is, for us, the task at hand. The grace of God was with Mochuda from his early years. He spurned the worldly ways of both his parents that he might become devoted to the Lord. He loved the praise of God, sung by the bishop Carthagus and his devoted monks, and spent long days at Tuam in the monastery just to hear the Psalms. He soon became the bishop's charge that he might learn to trust the Lord and serve his holy, glorious name. Once he became a priest, he started two new churches, preaching in each one the fame of Jesus and his kingdom. Healings, too, and exercising demons were a part of what the Lord appointed him to do. Mochuda moved to Rahan, there to start a monastery, to which students came from far and wide to learn the priestly art. Machuda's work grew rapidly. His fame spread widely throughout Ireland and beyond as young men by the hundreds came to learn from him that they might take their stand for Christ and his dominion. And it's here that we begin to see throughout the land of Ireland changes in the hearts appear of other abbots. Envy, jealousy, and hatred. For his colleagues came to fear his ministry and looked for ways that he might be expelled from Rahim. Men from well-respected institutions came to be inflamed with all the wickedness of hell against Machuda. 
They conspired as one and went together to the king to tell their lies and lay false charges on this son of grace. By many machinations they succeeded, and Machuda's work was done in Rachan. He was exiled far away to Lismore with 840 of his monks, where he would serve until the day God called him to his glorious home above, to live forever, forever in the Savior's love. The dark hearts of the abbots who conspired to send Bachuda packing show the state of faith in Ireland in his lifetime. Tired of trusting God, no longer pleased to wait on him, they turned to government to do their bidding. No more would they celebrate God's blessings on the work of those who grew up in their midst and faithfully obeyed their calling. Jealousy provoked them to conspiracy and lies. They were afraid their work might be eclipsed, and without shame they sought the local magistrate to aid them in their wickedness. They would defame the righteous rather than give thanks, and so opposed the grace of God and brought his name to vile opprobrium. They would forego all brotherly affection and eschew the teaching of God's word. Thus they would sow the tares of sin and wickedness and do the devil's work instead of God's. But he who knows the hearts of men would bring them to humiliation in his time, to be made subject by a king's choice to a far-off pontiff and his whim. Their legacy would be co-opted, and their soaring star of radiant revival would burn low, burn out, and disappear beyond the far horizon of church history. For no, or few, great Irish saints would grace the land of Ireland after Whitby, and the slow decline of faith that was beginning and increasing in Mochuda's day would more and more become throughout the land the norm, until the light that shone before that watershed would radiate no more. Visit our website, www.ilba.org, to discover the wealth of resources available to help you grow in your walk with and work for the Lord. You can review all the previous editions of the Inverse Theology Project by going to the website, clicking the Resources tab, then clicking the Inverse Theology Masthead. In our next installment on Systematic Theology, we will begin to consider how the law of sin in the church has led it astray from biblical faith over the centuries. Until then, for the Fellowship of Iowa and the Inverse Theology Project, this is T.M. Moore.